Hello and welcome to this week's Sloan Newscast. Now, this week we're watching YouTube. Because for this story about Russia and Vladimir Putin and the future of Russian democracy, YouTube is where it's at. And I'm kind of kidding, but I'm not really kidding. This week we're investigating a remarkable film made by Alexei Navalny, the figurehead of Russia's opposition movement, the guy poisoned by the Kremlin, now in prison, who was behind the making of a film that we think marks a new era in Russian politics. And of course, we're going to tell you why. We've worked with the journalist and broadcaster John Kampfner, who reported for many years from Moscow. He's been watching YouTube and decoding this film, the hidden messages to Putin, the ridicule, the revelations. So join us as we take a trip out in a boat onto the Black Sea. Всем привет, это Георгий Албуров, и как вы могли заметить, мы находимся немного в непривычных для нас условиях. This story begins with three men in Hawaiian shirts on a rubber dinghy. They've ditched their usual mobile phones because they're always tracked. They might as well be innocent holidaymakers who've gone out on the Black Sea for a ride. The intrepid trio, members of Alexei Navalny's investigative team, are bobbing on the sea. They launch a bright orange drone. You can see on the horizon the top-secret billion-dollar palace of President Vladimir Putin. Russians have heard the rumours. Soon they're going to see it up close. It's incredible that the men have got this far. Putin's imperial folly has its own airstrip, border guards and checkpoints. They try four times to launch the drone. They finally strike lucky. The footage they're about to capture will galvanize tens of thousands of Russians to take to the streets in protest. I'm John Kampfner, and in this episode of the Slow Newscast, I'm going to tell you the story of a YouTube video. A film made by a man who just months earlier is on the verge of death after the Kremlin's secret agents insert deadly poison into the seams of his underpants in his Siberian hotel room. Doctors in Russia say they're doing all they can to save the life of Alexei Navalny, the most prominent critic of President Putin's government. He collapsed on a flight the US, from Siberia. The EU and Canada have called for the immediate release of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. He was arrested after landing in a Moscow airport on his return from Berlin. Alexei Navalny is on a mission to bring down Vladimir Putin, dictator, czar, with a penchant for luxury. Nobody knows how much Putin's worth. He might be one of the richest men in the world. He's got there by gathering a group who control extraordinary power and extraordinary wealth. And now Navalny's going to use social media to blow it wide open. This is a story about power and greed, but it's also about the information wars. In a country where speech isn't free, who controls the internet? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. But first, let's meet our main character, Alexei Navalny. Vlogger, activist, politician extraordinaire. Alexei Navalny can be described in many ways, and his role has changed. In one sentence, he is Russia's main opposition leader. He is a man who has a vision and determination to change Russia. He is a man who has mastered the internet and broke the monopoly on information that the Kremlin had. Arkady Ostrovsky runs coverage of Russia for The Economist magazine. Like me, he was based in Moscow for quite a few years. He's charted the country's journey from Soviet dictatorship to a brief flowering of democracy in the chaos of the early 90s and onto the South American mafia-style authoritarianism we now see under Putin. So I first came across him around 2008, 2009, as a blogger, anti-corruption blogger at the time, it was one of the sort of innovative tools used by Navalny to look into corruption. And what sort of impression did he give you then? Sort of a guy next door, uh, somebody quite familiar, sort of an ordinary man, uh, uh, an ordinary person. I knew he was not just a blogger. He was, it was clear that he, he had political ambition. As somebody who is completely different from any Russian politician I had seen before, it was a very new type of a politician for a country where politics have traditionally been dominated by people from within the system. This is very hard to believe now, but up until about 2011, Navalny's only presence was online. I mean, the media was dominated either by television or by traditional media. Navalny didn't complain about the fact that he was blacklisted effectively or was not allowed onto television programs. You know, television ignored him. He ignored television. From the very, very beginning, he decided that he was going to circumvent that monopoly by building up his internet presence. Certainly, the first time he used it properly, when he'd started clocking up a lot of followers, was when he started posting his videos. This video will be in the evening, on the 1st of July, at the moment when half of the country will be sitting and thinking, what to do and how to do it. The switch happened only in a sort of October winter in 2011. That's when he switched from being a blogger into being a leader. What happened was Navalny called on 
all those who followed him on social media, all those who listened to him at all, to vote in the parliamentary election that year for any party other than United Russia, the Kremlin's party, which he branded uh, almost accidentally as the party of crooks and thieves. And that brand stuck, that label very much stuck. And people followed his advice and it was a slap in the face of United Russia and the Kremlin. And the slap was so hard and so loud that the Kremlin was forced to rig the elections, which in turn provoked big protests in Moscow and other large cities. Even though he never mentions him by name, Putin increasingly realises the danger that Navalny poses. He's repeatedly arrested, his family is followed, his finance is frozen. Then last August... Navalny falls ill on an internal flight. If it hadn't been for the smart work of the pilot and doctors, he wouldn't have survived. He's whisked off to Germany, where scientists confirm that he's been poisoned by Novichok, the Kremlin's favourite method of assassination. Now let's look at what Novichok is. This term describes a group of nerve agents developed by the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. Novichoks were designed to be particularly toxic, they're very hard to detect, are lethal, even in small quantities, and can take effect in under two minutes. Navalny spends five months in Berlin recuperating. He begins planning his return home to Russia. On January the 17th, he takes a flight back to Moscow. Arkady was on board, just a couple of rows behind him. I didn't know at the time that the whole thing was broadcast live, streamed live by journalists on that flight. I mean, that's another extraordinary thing, is that Navalny turned his return into the biggest media event. Mr. Navalny from Israeli television, aren't you afraid? Mr. Navalny He was very focused throughout the flight. He put on his headphones and throughout the flight he was watching uh, Rick and Morty, an American sitcom. After the plane lands, Navalny is arrested at passport control. And of course, the whole thing is live-streamed by the journalists who've travelled with him. Again, this was extraordinary because, you know, when you're actually witnessing it, you don't think that, you know, a million or two million people are watching it at the same time. Two days later, without warning and with Navalny behind bars, his team drops the video. They've produced brilliant investigations on corruption before, but nothing remotely like this. Russian politics is about to be shaken to its core. Привет, это Навальный. И это расследование мы придумали ещё, когда я находился в реанимации, но сразу договорились о том, что выпустим. That did come a surprise. We now know that the film and the return of Navalny were very closely timed. That was kept in complete secret. Nobody knew what was coming. Navalny very clearly didn't want to release that film while he was in Germany. He wanted to do it in Russia. It was a sort of a massive missile which he wanted to launch from within the country at the Kremlin. And it came, as you say, two days later when he was already behind bars and suddenly he lobs this massive rocket. И очень легко увидеть, кому еще Путин оказывал серьезную поддержку. Нефтепродукты через терминал. I remember sort of sitting in Moscow in the apartment, which sort of looks over the Moscow River and the White House, where the government sits. And 
you know, normal life sort of carrying on outside the windows, you know, traffic noise, police sirens, and watching this film and sensing the tension as if, you know, sensing the Kremlin silence, a deafening silence, and being surprised that I've just watched this film and so have millions of others, and yet life seems to be carrying on as normal? How can that be? It's that sort of moment. It's a very professional video, and it's the most fascinating thing about it. This is Andrei Soldatov. His books about the security services, networks of power, and control of the internet have got under the skin of the Kremlin. I remember two years ago I had a discussion with some folks at Facebook, and they told me, if your activists want to make something really popular on YouTube, their videos should be extremely short, something like 40, 20 seconds. And uh, actually we see that videos produced by Navalny in this particular film is um, the exact opposite of his approach. It's nothing of being short, it's actually almost two hours long, but nevertheless, it became very popular. It's made very professionally. You can see all these uh, 3D and uh, visualization and the humor, and, which is a very crucial part of Navalny's appeal because people just love how he jokes. Can you just tell me about the beginning of the film? Now, to people who are not particular experts on Putin, it seemed a strange way to begin by going into his past and talking about his KGB past in Dresden. Я в Дрездене, а вот в этом неприметном панельном здании чертили свои первые коррупционные схемы те, кто позже устроит What was he trying to say in that segment? Well, it's, uh, it's actually it was really remarkable because what he did in the beginning of his film, he showed some identity cards and some documents proving that some people, some close friends of Putin, they served with him in Dresden. And one guy, he never admitted that he was a KGB officer. And now Navalny was uh, standing there holding in his hand uh, the ID card of this guy, and it, it became absolutely clear that he was a KGB officer. Это Николай Петрович Токарев, человек, возглавляющий Транснефть. Он, в отличие от Чемезова, свою работу в КГБ никогда не подтверждал. And I think maybe the hidden message here was that German authorities actually wanted to make it sure uh, to the Russian authorities that well, we, we, we have this long memory and we have these uh, documents and these records on Putin's friends, people who actually remained very close to him. It seems like a strange start to what's supposed to be a movie about a secret palace. But this is a conversation in the shadows about power. Navalny is telling Putin, you know, I know things that you would rather I didn't know. This section of the film, the first thing we see, is intended for an audience of one, the president. But Navalny's main audience is the Russian public. What he really wants to show them is back on that mysterious stretch of coastline where we started. Thanks to the drone footage and floor plans sneaked out by disgruntled construction engineers, Navalny takes his viewers inside. Here's Arkady Ostrovsky again. The moment when Navalny's uh, guys go on this inflatable boat and launch their drone with a camera to fly over the most protected piece of property. 
that in itself was extraordinary because it, it showed that in this day and age there can be no secrecy. Uh, you know, they've gone past all the surveillance system, all the radars, all the air defense, all the, the coastal guards to film it. And it was a kind of a bit of a James Bond sense to it. You know, here is a... And the parody of it, that here is the sort of two slightly clownish Navalny guys launching this drone and filming a secret palace as if one of Bond's villains with underground tunnels. Just how senseless it is. Just how absolutely senseless this obsession with wealth is and how much it symbolizes Putin's years in power. This is where the fun begins. The floor plans create an incredibly detailed 3D model of the entire palace. We're taken on a personalized tour into a marble bathing area, puzzlingly named on the architect's drawings as the Aqua Discotheque. Then into the room where he can play with his little electric cars. Each piece of furniture comes with a price tag and jingle. It's a monument to vulgarity, and we're transfixed. On the extensive grounds, we see a casino and church, a great combination, several vineyards, helipads, and even a subterranean ice hockey rink for one. I think Navalny's people understood. No, nobody can actually expect uh, you to remember or to even to watch the whole thing. Obsessives like me might watch from start to finish, many times. For everyone else, there are the funny sound bites, artfully done. Pop-up animations, a cracking, mocking voiceover, many memeable moments. When a pole pops out of a stage in the private shisha lounge, what could it possibly be for? Not saucy dancing, surely. A giant animated cooking shawarma appears on it instead, the only reasonable explanation. We head inside the games room, where Russia's great leader beats all his mates at Dance Dance Revolution. Gold-painted toilet brushes, from Italy, where else? At a cool 800 euros a pop, or perhaps a poop. That's four times the monthly state pension. We see Vlad the Great starred as Louis XIV, avec opulent wig. As lounge lizard reclining on his chaise longue, Gatsby style. These little moments, when they're cut out from the longer film, are a treasure trove of shareable viral content. You can produce something very memorable, like a, like a song or maybe just a short video using one fascinating element from the film. And that's exactly what actually happened. We got Russian rap singers while uh, producing videos using, uh, for instance, Aqua Discotheca thing. The best of the lot, the Aqua Discoteca. Nobody, not even Navalny, has a clue what it's supposed to be. But there are two of them, apparently. The video for this song features our hero president breakdancing in the aforementioned jacuzzi. It too became a YouTube hit, coming in at 6 million views. Not bad. And it's just one of many versions. Here's Arkady Ostrovsky again. 
He talks in the same language that the young people understand and get. He's obviously older than a lot of his supporters, but that doesn't matter. He still represents generational shift in Russian politics, and Russian politics have always moved by the shifts in generations. The production values are high. The visuals are grabby. The tone is mocking. Ever since he's come on the scene, in his blogs, videos, even at his own court appearances, Navalny uses simple, catchy phrases to get through to audiences who usually find politics complicated and boring. Putin's party, United Russia, is now described by millions of people as the party of crooks and thieves. As for the president himself, thanks to Navalny, he's come to be known as the underpants poisoner. It's a piece of entertainment uh, that hooks people up. As Navalny always maintained, you know, fighting against authorities should be fun. And it's a fun film. I couldn't stop watching it. I had to write a story that day. And I was cursing Navalny for launching this film when I was on deadline. But I literally, I just couldn't stop watching it. And that's the brilliance of it. Navalny's operating on a number of levels, but with the same goal. He makes people laugh. He makes them shout in anger. The absurd display of wealth he shows us at Putin's palace cuts through. It speaks to everything that's wrong. The nexus of money, status and power. I mean, in Russia, you're not respected unless you have access to these type of, of instruments. You know, I was told one story about a Russian oligarch who had to have the world's biggest yacht because he was trying to cow a Hollywood mogul into doing business with him. I was told another story of a member of Putin's presidential administration he had to have a private jet, otherwise no one would respect him and no one would talk to him. So to that degree, sort of Putin's palaces, it's a very public display of power. You have to live like that. This is Catherine Belton, a former Moscow correspondent at the Financial Times, whose recent book on Putin and his wealth has become a global bestseller. She knows as much as anyone about the minutiae of where it's come from. The web of transfers, the shell companies the state assets siphoned off by his friends on his behalf. She's impressed with what Navalny's dug up. He came up with fresh figures on, on how much money had been poured into this palace. He very clearly demonstrated the ongoing and continuing links to Putin. So the first time these allegations were made about the money being diverted into a $1 billion palace for Putin, we first heard of this in 2010 when a whistleblower named Sergei Kalesnikov escaped essentially from St. Petersburg with a USB stick of documents Kalesnikov was a financier working directly on funneling the money into the building of the palace. But, you know, we didn't really see the scale of it until Navalny's investigation. Navalny very ably demonstrated how wealth was diverted from the donations for medical equipment. And also, after the first noise about it in 2010, it was announced that a guy called Nikolai Shamalov, who was a former St. Petersburg dentist who happened to be very, very close to Putin, was essentially a front for Putin. And after these disclosures, there was a quick 
kind of shifting of the story. Another businessman, another ally of Putin announced that he bought the palace for $350 million and it was his and not Putin's. But the other thing that Navalny found, he hunted through some documents and accounts relating to the company that supposedly bought the palace then and found that in fact it hadn't been bought for $350 million. In fact, it had been bought for $350,000, you know, and it was a completely fake deal, i.e. they were just shuffling around the fronts. It was almost as if the cover had been blown. But the third very key finding that has kind of been quite overlooked is the fact that some of the big Russian state companies have also more recently been pouring money into the upkeep of Putin's palace. You know, in any other country, this would lead to a kind of huge public inquiry. But in Russia, of course, nothing has happened. He found that uh, the state pipeline monopoly had spent 4.3 billion rubles on kind of upkeep of the palace through essentially a fake contract to uh, rent out the palace's amphitheater for 120 million rubles a month. And he also found that Rosneft, the state oil champion, was also paying out 40 million rubles per month in renting God knows what from the palace that it wasn't what didn't even explain what it was spending the money on in the contract. So you see kind of public funds being poured into maintaining Putin's palace. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Safe, efficient and reliable railways help to keep us all connected thanks to Network Rail. Yet, maintenance on the railways is a risky and sometimes fatal business. At Network Rail, two previous attempts to invigorate its track worker safety programmes had failed, leaving employees feeling sceptical that the organisation could ever get railway safety right. Since 2019, EY teams have worked with Network Rail to deliver a transformation that improved safety protocols and changed employee behaviour around safety. Network Rail Rail Hub, a new digital safety platform and app, eliminated inaccurate paper trails and worked offline, so it could be used by workers in remote locations. Since the platform was introduced, near misses affecting maintenance workers on the railways have fallen by 40%. Read the full story at ey.com. The Putin money tree is complicated by design. 
Navalny's slapstick and acerbic wit might have detracted from the real story, but the genius of the film is that it hasn't. The evidence is compelling. The message is ultra-serious. The problem is the way that Putin has monopolised power is that he can access any company's wealth. He and his allies in the security services basically can extort cash from any Russian businessman whenever they wanted. So Putin actually has access to hundreds of billions of dollars worth of cash. Russia, despite the fact that its population doesn't live very well, uh, has, you know, has tremendous wealth in raw materials and Putin can access it whenever he wants. But, you know, there's only so many billions of dollars you can spend on palaces and, and yachts. So the rest of it is strategic. That's a strategic slush fund that they can then use to try and undermine rival Western democracies. So far, we've seen the KGB links, the absurdity, the state within a state, and the billionaire cronies. Navalny doesn't even spare the mistresses and their mums and the wealth and power he's gifted them. He does it all with a smirk. Close to the end, this two-hour epic takes a turn. Navalny sharply switches tone. Suddenly, he gets angry. He and his team haven't spent all this time producing this documentary and compiling the charge sheet just to embarrass Putin. His message is, don't just laugh at your leader, get rid of him. He calls on citizens to take to the streets. In just over a week, the video is seen by 100 million people around the world, including an estimated 70 million in Russia. Pretty much the entire adult population has been invited to revel in Putin's humiliation. In most countries, revelations far less damaging than these would spell the end for political leaders. Not in Russia. An opinion poll conducted shortly afterwards by a firm that's reasonably independent and respected asked those who'd viewed the film whether their opinion of their president had changed as a result. Some 17% of respondents said they now thought worse of him. Not a lot in my book. Whereas 77% said it hadn't changed their view of him. What on earth, I ask Andrei Soldatov, our digital expert, is going on? We need to understand that still most of the Russians, they, if not trust, but respect Putin for what he did for the country, as they believe he did. And they support him for this um, new national identity that he made the country great again and feared by many countries and, and all that. And uh, in this logic, if you have such a strong man in the Kremlin, it's quite Well, understandable if this guy also has a very big palace. The other way of explaining this is that, look, yes, we understand these people are corrupt, but at least they've been, well, stealing for 20 years, so probably they got tired of it and they would not steal more. But the new people, like Navalny, they... Uh, should be by definition more greedy because they are younger, they are hungry, and they actually they want to come to power exactly for that, to steal more. And so probably it's better to stay with the old guys. What's clear is that it's going to be a long battle, 
and this battle is being fought mainly online. One thing I don't understand is why Putin hasn't tried harder to control the internet. Within months of taking power in 2000, he had crushed the one independent and very feisty TV station, turning it into a Kremlin mouthpiece. The state has a small army of brilliant young techies and coders who know how to hack. So why didn't Russia go the way of China? This comparison with China is not really helpful here because the Chinese internet was built right from the beginning with the added element of censorship and surveillance. And in my country, for more than 20 years, the internet developed absolutely free and unrestricted, mostly because Putin didn't pay attention to the internet until 2011-2012 when we got the protests in Moscow and some of the cities. And that was the moment he understood that might be this thing, this technology could pose some danger to him because this is the way people and protesters can mobilize themselves and uh, organize themselves and go to the streets to protest. And um, while we have, now we've been living under some sort of restrictions on the internet for eight years. So what powers does he have? to control the internet, and what does he want to have? We have filtering and uh, we have lots of sites blocked by the authorities that we know how to do. They are not that successful at blocking platforms. We tried several times and so far we were successful only with uh, LinkedIn, which is not the most popular way to mobilize people and uh, to take them to the streets. Yeah, it's not very... LinkedIn's hardly very subversive, is it? No. They tried with some other platforms like Telegram and they just failed. Uh, they tried some, some other tricks, blocking well, videos and, and that kind of stuff. And again, they failed. But they became really good at uh, using repressions to intimidate ordinary users. They have plenty of cases. Lots of people got fined and sometimes ended in jail just because they posted something, well, sometimes very innocent. Something like a cartoon or maybe some joke about the church or about some officials. And because it's so random, you do not actually understand what might trigger the government reaction. It sends a very strong message to ordinary citizens that it's probably better to stay more cautious when you express yourself online. So they keep it deliberately vague in order to encourage the need to self-censor? The problem is that actually it works only if you have political stability in the country. If you have some sort of crisis, these schemes doesn't work. Why? Because people, that's the nature of the internet, actually. When people see something, witness something, for instance, they see some a policeman beating people on the streets, or we see some natural disaster or explosion, they feel uh, an urge to a desire to share something online, and they just uh, forget about all these cautions, about all these government restrictions, and they start posting and sharing news. And it might be videos, it might be text. And this is the problem for the Kremlin, because when they need to deal with all of a sudden millions of posts, they do not know how to cope with that. And that's what's been happening. Navalny knows how to inspire people, particularly the young. No sooner did he return to Russia and get slammed in jail than people came in their thousands onto the streets, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but in dozens of smaller towns across the country. 
He's done it spectacularly with the aid of this film. But not just this film, not just YouTube. For the best part of a decade, he's used every digital platform going. Some of his ideas early on weren't to people's liking. But in recent years, he's polished his appeal. He's got his message out on every social media channel available. His youngest fans have turned to TikTok, which has been crucial in spreading the word. One girl in a video that's now disappeared gives a tutorial on how to escape arrest by impersonating an American. You are violating my human rights. In another, some tips on what to wear at the protest. Trainers or DMs? How many layers for the cold? What colour hat? The Kremlin responded by ordering TikTok to remove the content. It's a game of tech cat and mouse. Here someone catches and uploads a crowd of protesters dancing around, singing one of the Aquadiscoteca songs. Here's Arkady. How important is the younger demographic, the people who enjoyed the memes, who did their own TikTok posts, whatever, how important are they to his movement? Oh, they're absolutely key to his movement. They are absolutely essential because Navalny's story is is a generational story. It's absolutely essential to his politics. It's essential to what he's trying to achieve in moving Russia from its imperial past and its imperial legacy towards a nation state. All his politics are addressed at that younger generation of Russians under the age of 50. Online agitation, resistance by meme, will continue. And for all its attempts, the Kremlin won't be able to stop it. Yet for all his mastery of politics and the internet, for all the fervour of his supporters, Navalny languishes in jail. Nobody knows how long he'll be there or whether he'll even survive. In the meantime, Putin remains firmly at the top. He has all the luxury and wealth anyone could ever hope for. Yet he too is trapped with nowhere to go, dependent on brute force to keep him in power. Whatever happens to Navalny, he has changed politics in Russia for good. His use of the digital space has opened up a new front. He's punctured the pomposity of Putin and the most powerful. He won't give up. In the new Russia, whoever holds the tech advantage may hold the key to power. Thanks for listening this week. This episode was produced by Gabriella Jones and music was by Tom Kinsella. And this week I also wanted to say this. We've been doing this podcast for about a year now and as time's gone on it's been such a pleasure to start to get a sense of who you, our listeners, are. Hearing from you guys on Twitter or through Tortoise is always such a pleasure. 
whether it's your feedback, your story suggestions, your gripes. But there's also a way for you to take part in our newsroom more broadly. You can also become a member of Tortoise. That's the newsroom where I work and where we produce this podcast. And being a member means that you can take part in our editorial meetings. You can help shape our ideas and the stories that we tell. So if that sounds like something that you'd like, I've got a code that you can use that gives you a half price discount. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50. Thanks and see you next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. 